Hi, hi, and welcome to the Travelling Symphony Movie Club. My name is John. This is Katie. Hi, everyone. And this is our companion podcast for the Imitation Game, which is our most recent screening, all about Alan Turing decoding the uh, Enigma codes from Germany in the Second World War in Bletchley Park. Now we're so excited about this podcast because there's a, a large discussion about the historical accuracy of the film. And we have two brilliant guests, the first of which is Professor Christopher Gray, who is the head of the Department of Human Resource Management and Organization Studies at Royal Holloway. He also wrote a book called Decoding Organization, which was all about Bletchley Park, how it was structured, the really unique ways in which it differed from maybe other decoding organizations around uh, Europe and the world during World War II. And it was just such a, a fascinating conversation really to get a bit more historical insight into the true stories behind the imitation game. It was so fascinating to speak to Chris and I felt that we were really able to go through all the questions that everyone had during the film, everything that we discussed on the live chat and really uncover what actually happened, what didn't happen, but also lots of other extra information around Bletchley Park that was just fascinating. It was brilliant to get his insights and we covered everything from Deniston and his role in the code breaking, um, the role of women at Bletchley, the information sharing between Soviets, what did and didn't go on with that, um, and a lot around the secrecy around Bletchley Park and how everything was managed. And something that was particularly interesting, I think, was what he described as the Turingification of the Bletchley Park story and some of the bits that we discuss really go into detail about how it was much more of a group effort. Now, speaking of Alan Turing, we were also delighted to have as a guest on the podcast, John Leach, who is a former MP and now a councillor. And he was one of the key figures behind the Alan Turing bill, which eventually pardoned Alan Turing. Of course, he was prosecuted and convicted of gross indecency because of the fact that he was gay. But first we'll go to Professor Gray, and he started off by explaining a little bit of his specialist subject, which is how Bletchley Park was structured and organised. Bletchley Park was a place, obviously, it wasn't an organisation. And, and what happens there, organisation, is just stitching together a whole lot of different bits of organisation. So you've got involvement from the different armed services, the army, the navy, the air force. You've got the different government ministries associated with that, which at the time was, you know, the War Office and, and, and within that the Air Ministry and the and the Admiralty for the Navy. Um, and then you've got a whole lot of civilian organisations who are either employing uh, people employed at Bletchley Park, you know, in particular uh, by the Foreign Office. But then a lot of them were employed by the Post Office. So it was much more like a kind of a network or a sort of like a kind of complex joint venture. But crucially, one that was not put together first and then did its work, but one which actually was created as the work was ongoing. So that makes it very complicated. It was like building building an aircraft whilst it's actually flying in the air. You know, it's a weird kind of network and agglomeration of different things. So that's the first thing. And the second thing I think I'd say about it is, in, in general terms, is that makes it very difficult to understand as an organisation is because of the issue of the secrecy of the work. And that meant not just that it was secret from the outside world, but that actually inside the organization, it was very heavily compartmentalized. So you had different people working in different sections without having any knowledge of each other, without having any knowledge of the big picture of things. It's difficult to be precise about numbers, but probably something like 80% of people who worked there, they didn't actually know what it was that they were doing. They knew it was secret, but they were doing some little part of it. The, the, the expression that was used at the time, um, it changed later, but it was enwised. So were you enwised meant, had you been told that, about Enigma that it was been, been broken? So very strange. So you've got people, and then you've got these separate work groups working on things uh, in isolation. You know, we can find some cases where people were actually working on a problem on one end of the corridor that had been solved at the other end, but they didn't know because it was so compartmentalized. Do you think that, that the way that that worked and having people working in different clusters helped the the overall functioning of it or, or was it a hindrance? Well, it's a really difficult question. I mean, obviously the secrecy issue was, was you know, was very paramount. Yeah? But I think, you, you know, you could perhaps argue that it was in certain ways kind of overdone in terms of the internal stuff. Um, 
I mean, they did have some mechanisms to try to sort of share what was happening across different parts, but but it didn't always work. And, and it's always a dilemma for secret kind of secret intelligence organizations and so on. And you could draw the comparison of the run up to 9-11 and the Twin Towers thing. And the, the subsequent inquiries suggested that one of the reasons why they hadn't spotted it was going to happen was because you had these separate uh, silos within the intelligence world that didn't communicate with each other. So then you might say, well, okay, then the answer is, is that you open out those silos and get them all communicating with each other. And that actually is what the American intelligence agencies started to do post 9-11. But that then creates the opposite problem, which is it may, then it makes you very vulnerable to the secrets leaking. And indeed, that if we think about the um, the Chelsea Manning revelations or, or or kind of leaks you know you say well why was this huge volume of intelligence available to someone who was relatively kind of junior well the answer is because they'd you know they'd move to this more open thing so there's not really a kind of correct answer here you can't really sort of say okay there's an optimal level of secrecy and open <laughs> yeah. it's just is that each of them has its own kind of pros and cons mm. to it yeah, yeah. On that point, again, we're not sure how historically accurate a lot of things are in the film, but um, one of the things that happens in the film is the people at MI6 decide that they feel it's important to be sharing more information with Russian spies than Churchill and the government um, thought they should. So there's sort of this kind of element of the film of, like you say, everything shrouded in secrecy, but certain people may be making decisions about, you know, when to share what and how. And in your sort of knowledge of it, do you feel like some of that went on and that, you know, at what level were these decisions being made, I suppose, is the question. Are we talking about the idea of of MI6 kind of covertly feeding information to Bletchley Park to the Soviet Union? Yes. It's complete nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> There's no truth in this at all. I mean, clearly there was an, a level of official secret sharing between between the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union to the extent that they were, you know, allies. One of the most important military uh, significances of Bletchley Park was the intelligence that was provided for the Battle of Kursk, which was a big tank battle, German Soviet Union. So we were supplying intelligence to them that came from Enigma, but the, but the Soviet Union didn't, didn't, know, uh, didn't know officially from the UK government that Enigma had been broken, okay? In terms of the idea of there being a sort of like a, a kind of back, a sort of unofficial back channel from MI6 or whoever uh, to uh, the Soviet Union, as that, that's just that is just nonsense. I mean, there's obviously a third issue, which I mean, I think I believe, as you know, I didn't watch the film, but I mean, I think it, it touches on sort of John Cairn Cross. So there's a question about whether via means of espionage the Soviet Union knew about Enigma. This is quite a murky area and what Cairn Cross really knew and quite what he did. I, I, I'm not very clear about this, but I don't, you know, I, I, I think, you see, precisely because of the compartmentalization, there's no way that somebody like Cairn Cross would be able to tell the whole story because he, he wouldn't have known it anyway. You mm. know? Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, couldn't have shared the information even if he'd wanted to. Um, to. To go in a bit more detail as well about the international side of things, Something that's not covered at all in the film is the role of other nations in the breaking of Enigma, in particular the work that was done by Polish codebreakers before Alan Turing started his work and the work that they did that, that built on it. Would you be able to fill us in a little bit about what it was that they did? This is also you know, quite a kind of controversial and, and has become quite a kind of politically charged issue particularly amongst what you might sort of kind of call Polish nationalists. And there's been sort of quite a, a feeling in recent years that the Polish contribution was kind of airbrushed out. You can go too far with that. And also, I think some people are kind of really overstating what that, that Polish contribution was. So, so I think the first thing to say, and I think it's one of the reasons why people misunderstand this, when you say uh, breaking enigma, it sounds as if it's one thing, but it's not. It's a whole overall kind of cipher system, you know, so it would be like a bit like saying, oh, I hacked the Internet or, <laughs> you know, as if it was just one thing. You know, right. you know. So you've got so, you, so you've got a whole lot of different systems which change over time. And although they all kind of you could say, you know, the, the enigmas are, are all in one kind of family, if you like, but it is a family. Right. On the one hand, you've got at the time of the war, you've got sort of army, I mean, by that I mean German army, German Air Force Enigma, German Naval Enigma. But each of those has got a different variant, which is called a key. And the Bletchley Park, they, they're given sort of code words. So the, um, 
the army enigmas running colors so there's there's enigma green enigma red enigma brown you know a whole lot of things and the the, the naval ones are uh, named after fish so like shark for instance and the air force ones are named after birds and how many were there in total is is is, is difficult to put a number on but i mean we're talking about tens conceivably hundreds that kind of scale of things right each of those different enigma enigma keys i mean they're not completely separate problems in a in a cryptanalytical sense in other words you can use the techniques that you use against one against the other and so on and so forth but still they are somewhat distinct so that's the that's the first thing but the second thing to say is that the wartime system of enigma was substantially more complicated than the pre-war system so now you come back to the poles the poles were working on the pre-war system okay and it was it was not the same as wartime enigma it is true that the polish mathematicians made very substantial advances against pre-war enigma and because of this family resemblance it's true that knowledge those techniques including early versions of these bomb machines you're probably aware bomb itself is a polish word so sometimes the message that comes out is oh well the poles broke enigma first but because enigma is not one thing that's a misleading statement so they did make some significant advances and they did hand that material over to Bletchley Park people, including uh, Alan Turing, uh, so it was available to them. Um, there was a British codebreaker who was one of the most important codebreakers at Bletchley Park, Dilly Knox, who had been a codebreaker, you know, going way back to to the First World War, and he had broken the ninety in nineteen thirty seven an Italian naval enigma uh, cipher. But you wouldn't then say, oh well, Dilly Knox broke enigma, yeah, because it was a particular thing, right? So they made an important contribution, um, and it, um, you know, and, and presumably, or not just you know, undoubtedly, uh, it, that 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 informed and speeded up and made better, uh, more effective what they did at Bletchley Park. But that, that that I think is the extent of it. And one of the things I wanted to mention off the back of that, you mentioning about like breaking Enigma was not a single act and it was not breaking a single thing within the film. There are um, a couple of big eureka moments and i'm almost certain this was just a heightened dramatic tension but in particular with the mm -hmm. use of ciphers and sillies they reference in the film that one of the transcribers of the messages noticed that um, her counterpart uses the same five letters at the start of every they're supposed to use you know random five letters but potentially either just through laziness or maybe they use like um, a family name or something like that um, is that something that happened? I mean, that is true. And, and those kinds of things were ways in which the supposedly unbreakable systems were broken because of human error. And it's, it's a very familiar thing. It's, it's just the equivalent of the way that, you know, we know that lots of people for their password on various things, they use the word password or, you know, or, or they use their date of birth or, you know, it's something like that. And, and, and it's just a very, very similar to that. And so you have um, you have cases where, yes, it was uh, maybe someone using their girlfriend's initials or, you know, that yes, that kind of thing that then took out one of the non-random elements and therefore reduces the total set of, of probabilities. Other examples of what you could call sillies um, uh, were things like, for example, the fact that um, very often the German operators uh, on the Enigma systems might sign off by saying, uh, Hail Hitler. And so you could kind of look and then it becomes a little bit non-random and so you can sort of do that. And, and I mean, the, another sort of source of, of, of sillies, though, though not quite at the same level of kind of error, you would have them using uh, quite low-grade non-enigma ciphers to broadcast things like weather reports, which, would, which were quite easy ciphers to break. And then the, but, but then the weather report might also be transmitted on an Enigma network. But of course, because the weather report is the same, you've already got what would then be called a crib, you know, so you can sort of do that. And I think the, the most interesting variant of these, which is really, you know, incredibly ingenious, you know, to provoke a message you knew. And, 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 and this was something, a technique which was called gardening. And what they did was they laid uh, mines in the sea, okay? Uh, so this is the British laying mines in, 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 in German sea. But, but, but in the full knowledge that the Germans knew this was happening and that they mm -hmm. would then go and diffuse them. But when they went to diffuse them, what they then did was sent messages with the map coordinates of where the mine was. And because of that, um, of course, we knew the map coordinates <laughs> because we put it there in the first place. So they're sending a message, the content of which we you know. know. Wow. Yes? 
And so then you can then work backwards. I mean, you still haven't solved it, but you've got to be you're, all the time. What you're doing is you're reducing the well, we have a phrase at the moment, flattening the curve in the mm. different <laughs> You're flattening the probability curve yeah, to make it easier to sort of do things. Because the other thing to bear in mind about these Enigma ciphers is that the setting of them changes each day. So we're not just saying there's Enigma, then there's Army Enigma, then there's Army Enigma Green, you know, so you write down, but then it's, it's changing on a 24-hour basis. So each day you have to start again. In the film, there's one main female character who works with Alan Turing, Joan Clark. And I suppose like the role of women isn't really touched on so much within the film. It really only focuses on their silo, as it were. And then the other women are really sort of shown to be almost like secretaries or there's they, not really any. They do show like a, a whole room of women doing the transcriptions, but mm. it's very a very small window into what it was, the, the work that was done. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is a really interesting um, area. And um, so... I mean, estimates vary, partly because of the rather strange nature of the organisation. But by the height of the war, there were somewhere between eight and 10,000 people working at Bletchley Park or the various outstations because it flowed out into different places. And by the height of the war, I mean D-Day, basically. So June 1944. Uh, and of those, about three quarters were women. So it was if it, so we could say it was a very heavily you know gendered organisation. But it was gendered in another way as well, because the, the majority of the sort of senior and highly skilled roles were done by men. The majority, but not absolutely entirely. So there are a number of um, quite significant um, uh, female code breakers of whom Joan Clark or Joan Murray is one, um, Margaret Rock is another, uh, Mavis Beatty is another. But I mean, the fact that I can think of their names, you know, kind of in a way sort of tells the story, right? One classification that is, is sometimes made in Black Bletchley Park workforce is to talk about the chiefs and the Indians. And so the chiefs are the kind of the code breakers, the cryptanalysts, the intelligence analysts, and the Indians are sort of doing the more, the more sort of like low level work of which there was a very con considerable amount because it's pre-computerization, so all of the record keeping, it's all clerical work. Um, the operation of the bombs is a very, um, uh, it's physically uh, demanding uh, job, but it's not high skill in a sort of intellectual sense. So those jobs were done by women. They were, but they were often very educated women. They were often doing work that was actually sort of beneath their educational level, I think say that you know it's a sort of fair thing to say and there was you know also I think a sort of pervasive sexism about that in terms of there were a lot of women working there and they were maths graduates you know so bearing in mind the fact that you know at the time we're talking about you know female graduates are a relatively small number of people these are maths graduates and they said oh well I'm not sure we would really need to explain this to the women because they wouldn't want to know you know so it was very, you know of course this was a sexism of the time you know it's not unique to Bletchley Park but still it was sort of present there when I started doing this 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 work on Bletchley Park, and I I started doing it in two thousand and three, maybe, um, and at that time I was a professor at Cambridge University, and every time I started talking about this project to people, everyone would just say, "Oh, my grandmother worked there, my auntie worked there," and used to think how can this be okay yeah there were 10,000 people but why do I keep meeting people whose female relatives work there and the answer is is because the recruitment came you know not was not just gendered but was came from a very quite a tight kind of so, social grouping of sort of middle class networks and the idea here was that these women would be of a certain sort of trustworthiness so there's that 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 element as well yeah if you imagine yourself as a young woman in 1939, 1940, whenever, and you get your first assignment after training, it says, you're assigned to HMS Pembroke 5. And you would sort of think, oh, that sounds, you know, I'm going to be, you know, a life on the ocean. HMS Pembroke 5 was the Wren's cover name for Bletchley Park. And so you then find yourself, you know, basically in a field in the middle of <laughs> the kind of English Midlands doing work that is very arduous, physically arduous, but you don't really know the significance of it. You can't tell anyone about it. Um, and, and you're not allowed to leave because once you started working there, you, you, you're, you know, there were some exceptions, but you basically don't leave. You know, and, and so this is very frustrating, I think. Mm. Yes. And um, there was something that I read about, about the sort of the living quarters 
um, being obviously quite temporary accommodation, how they would get really, really cold in the winter. And I think there was um, something from a lady who who was at Bletchley Park saying that her flannel would be frozen in the morning. Because obviously, again, in the film, it actually looks like really nice accommodation. Yeah, they, they're all sort of um, living in cosy cottages. Yeah, so I was thinking, <laughs> and also obviously that's not practical with the amount of people that were there. So I'm interested in sort of that as well. I mean, it was a huge logistical operation because, it, you know, again, because of the expansion of the numbers. The accommodation thing is a story in its own right. And of course, actually, the answer is, is that it was very varied. I mean, in some cases, and particularly for some of the services personnel, that they were actually in various kinds of military uh, establishments, barracks, you could say, effectively. And, and that posed some issues as well because of the fact that the people running those those military establishments didn't know what it was that their staff were doing and they kind of couldn't be told and often there was a kind of quite a tension between the military discipline uh, and then what they were doing at Bletchley Park. Okay. But then a lot of the people, and this is more what I think you're talking about, were, 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 were billeted in various people's houses all around in the area. Um, and in fact, um, two of the women who worked at Bletchley Park lived in my mother's house. Oh, in, really? Oh, wow. Yes, <laughs> uh, in Stony Stratford, which is not very far away from uh, Bletchley Park, where quite a lot of people lived. What their accommodation would be like would be very, very varied. So some people might indeed be in some freezing cold kind of place and have their flannel freezing. And other people might be in a very luxurious, you know. And it, what was also important to people was how close or far away were you? You know, for some people, you know, it was just a nice little walk through the park gates to get to Redshire. Other people, and there was a whole network of, um, of, of buses that were sort of, you know, bringing people in and, and so on and so forth. And then you also, there's an interesting question about what was the reaction of the local people to what was going on? Because clearly they knew this was kind of happening and who were all these people? And, and there were different versions of that going around. And some local people said, oh, these are people from London who are escaping from the Blitz and they're very cowardly and, you know, all this kind of thing. Other people, um, and there was quite an intense security operation uh, sort of monitoring what local people thought. And some people sort of said, oh, yes, this is a top secret uh, uh, establishment. And, 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 and of course, quite a lot of the people who worked there, although we have the image now, oh, they kept the secret. And, and they did in terms of publicly. But there's a lot of instances of people telling or hinting to their families or to their friends or being a bit drunk on the bus and boasting about their secret, you know, so or this kind of thing. And it's quite, if you read in the archives, you see regular, you know, people being summoned into the office, the, the boss's office in the morning, on a Monday morning, sort of saying, you were heard talking on the number 39 bus about, you know, wow. this kind of thing. <laughs> it was very, very varied. And some people absolutely hated their experience there. I mean, on the gender front, there's some accounts of quite awful things like, um, women giving birth in toilets, wow. Um, wow. quite a lot of evidence of uh, various kinds of mental breakdown. Um, this, that wasn't just to do with gender, by the way, but it was across the board. Again, you don't want to overstate this. I'm not saying this was the norm, but, but you know, a lot of people complaining about um, pay or unfair pay rates or differential pay rates for doing the same work. There's some evidence, I've never seen this publicly referred to except in, in the stuff that I've written, but um, there were cases of people writing anonymous notes to Alastair Denniston, who was the first head of Bletchley mm -hmm. Park, who I think features in, in yes. and I believe rather problematically in that film. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, but writing anonymous letters, sort of complaining about people and what well, was according to the archives as spiteful remarks about each other. So, you know, people were still people then. You know, we have this received idea of, you know, oh, well, the war's on and everybody is all sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's that, some of that's true, but it's a bit more nuanced. You mentioned Deniston there. And I don't know what your broader knowledge is of the particular people that worked within Bletchley Park, but are you able to shed any sort of light on what type of person uh, Deniston was because as you mentioned in the film he is very much the antagonist and he was very skeptical of Alan Turing's work and and keen to shut it down and thought that the, the pen and paper method would always be better. I mean I mean that is a complete travesty. So Alistair Deniston was was the original operational head of Bletchley Park and, and he and, and he like Travis who succeeded him you know went right back to the first world world war and, and the it had emerged out of the admiralty and admiralty code breakings it's just flat wrong to say that he he tried to kind of stymie the development Turing's work or the development of the bomb or anything like that he he was of a, a generation where code breaking had been primarily something that was done by linguists and the big shift in, in a sense, you know, with, with, with enigmas in particular, is that, that linguistic code breaking is still in, important, but it moves much more to being a mathematical thing. 
And that reflects the fact that these ciphers like Enigma are machine ciphers rather than hand ciphers. So, so it's true he was of that sort of older generation. But I mean, I mean, he, as much as anyone, perhaps more than anyone, had been instrumental in bringing in all these mathematicians like Turing and Welshman and, and Peter Twin, you know, and so many others. So, so he, he absolutely wasn't against that. I mean, the other criticism that's made of Deniston is that he couldn't really kind of cope with this sort of with the growth in scale of the thing. And I think there may be some 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 truth in that. I mean, I think the core issue wasn't so much that, is that he had this kind of what became a rather old-fashioned notion, which was that what was at stake was doing the code-breaking, whereas what Bletchley Park evolved into was a kind of a, a unified, and what became known as a signals intelligence operation, and by which I mean that it actually unified together the the bits that come before code breaking, which is the interception, and the bits that come afterwards, which are the intelligence analysis. And I think Denison's sort of mindset was still in this phase of, well, we're just the middle bit of that operation. But that is nothing to do with Alan Turing, nothing at all. I mean, Turing was a code breaker. Turing was in that, you know, that middle segment, if you like, of things. And so that wasn't the issue at all. The kind of organizational story of Bletchley Park it really is, is divides into two fairly neat halves um, uh, before and after uh, sort of the end of 1941. So and, and, and when you get this shift, Deniston goes, well, he doesn't really go, he goes to London and he's still doing stuff and Travis takes over. They're all underneath ultimately the boss of MI6, right? Who's the who's, who also is, is in is in the film, but operationally, so you get a change of the of the leadership and the development of this much more um, a much more factory like intelligence organization. And one of the things that precipitates that shift is the letter which is written to Churchill by a number of people, including Alan Turing. Uh, and I, again, I believe this is alluded to in, in the film. Um, and, and that letter was a plea for more resources. What is interesting about it is that for the a kind of particularly for an organizational person, so bear in mind at the time, Deniston is in charge and Travis is his deputy. And the letter has a sentence in it. It says, please understand that by this letter, we mean no criticism of Commander Travis. The implication is we do mean criticism of somebody else. Yes. Commander yes. Yeah. <laughs> somebody who, again, is almost forgotten now, um, but it was a, a major general in the war office. And he was brought in and he did a kind of a strategic review, organizational review of the whole thing. And again, this is right at the end of 1941. And it's out of that that you get all this reorganization Deniston goes to London, Travis takes over at Bletchley Park, and you have this new world. But this is nothing to do with Alan Turing. Mm. Yes. I mean, except in as much as he was there. Yes. In the film, after the code is broken, they then have this sort of ethical dilemma of what do we do with the information and how much information do we allow to be used? Because if the Germans then realise that Enigma is is compromised, they'll change the code and then we won't be able to read their messages anymore. And there's a a scene they, they have play out in which they deliberately don't use a piece of information which results in um, a passenger ship in the Atlantic, I think, being bombed and everybody on board dying. Mm. Um, Yeah, so it's that dual aspect of how do they, like you say, then use the information, but also it's very much depicted as the code breakers and MI6 working together to decide what information gets used when. Denison has nothing to do with it. You know, it kind of almost makes it out as if it's Alan Turing and his team making all of these decisions, which that bit, as a, even as a non-historian, that bit I thought, well, this that it can't have been true. That, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's complete nonsense. And it's certainly complete nonsense that they concealed from Deniston that, <laughs> that, they, that they were doing. The underlying issue is a true one. The underlying issue that there had to be decisions made about whether or not to use the Enigma intelligence and the fear that if if you did, then then that would then alert the Germans to the fact that you'd broken the codes. I mean, the decisions about about whether to use it or not were not taken by Turing or or, or people at Bletchley Park. I mean, the intelligence would go out of Bletchley Park, from, you know, via the intelligence analysts at Bletchley Park, and would go to ministries, and it, and the use or not would be decided by very senior military commanders and I suppose politicians to an extent, partly in order to protect the secret. Um, that even a lot of the military commanders and, um, uh, and 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 a lot of the politicians, they were not told initially that the source of this intelligence was code breaking. 
So they invented a fictional agent called Boniface. And so you sometimes see Enigma stuff, which is more often nowadays called ultra intelligence. But in the early days of the war, it was called it was called Source Boniface or Boniface. Um, and Boniface was supposedly a, a, an agent. But then it became clear he was generating so much intelligence, it must be a network of agents. It was partly to protect the secret. And it was also because of the fact that for traditional military commanders, they didn't really trust this, you know, this newfangled signals intelligence, whereas they could understand the concept of an agent, you know, so. The question then about, though, actually making use of the intelligence, it was often claimed that the Bletchley Park gave advance knowledge of the uh, bombing of Coventry and that that was ignored on the orders of Churchill in order to protect the secret. But the historical evidence doesn't 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 bear that out. The dilemma was, you know, always to do with very specific bits of intelligence. What people don't really un- always understand is that what the intelligence of Enigma reveals, it's all in little fragments, okay? You, you don't get a message saying, oh, we're going to invade Greece. <laughs> what, what, what you get is a whole series of messages which would be, you know, to move petrol or diesel or whatever to a particular place or to move a certain unit to a certain place. And then you have to stitch those together in order to get a kind of a... An yeah, a sort of a, an intelligence kind of picture, a, a sort of an overview. And so in that sense, because it's a stitching together that making use of it doesn't really in itself reveal that particular messages have been met, if you you see what I mean. To touch on Alan Turing um, a little bit, in the film he is very much portrayed as this difficult maverick genius who doesn't play well with others and who is often misunderstood and he's light years ahead of his time. I was wondering if you knew any more about perhaps how his work went at Bletchley Park and, and the way that he worked in a team with other people. I mean, you absolutely put your kind of finger on, on what I think is the crucial and underappreciated point, which is the extent to which this is a kind of a team effort, you know. The notion of it being to do with sort of acts of genius, of individual genius, I think is very misleading. This is difficult to be to be certain about, but my sense is that at the time, Turing was was one of a number, you know, not a tiny number, not a huge number, but, you know, was one of a number of, you know, very influential uh, and very able um, uh, mathematicians and, and, and indeed non-mathematicians. It's quite weird how this has morphed o- over time into Turing, 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 when I don't think at the time, you, if, if you were to sort of say, oh, who's the most important of the code breakers here? And I think probably people would at that time would have said, firstly, you know, the one I mentioned earlier, Dilly Knox, who was the head of the research centre and who had made the, you know, some of the early key breakthroughs, perhaps Gordon Welshman. And certainly, you know, the chief cryptographer at Bletchley Park was a guy called John Tiltman. You know, so, so you know, you might have said, oh, well, he's the chief. I'm not trying to say Tiltman was more important than Turing or that, you know, it, it isn't like that. But, but, but this kind of, kind of sometimes called this sort of Turingification of the Bletchley Park story is really kind of quite weird. I mean, he had some recorded eccentricities, whether they were, you know, very much more extraordinary than some of the others. I don't know. I mean, he sort of, uh, I don't know. There are these sort of stories about him having his sort of the tin mug he had to use, and it was chained to the radiator, and you know, and things like this. But I mean, there were, you know, quite, I mean, quite a lot of these people were, you know, sort of that kind of central code breaking group were probably, you know, a bit kind of eccentric. I'm not sure he was necessarily any more so than the others. What is kind of quite revealing about his ability to relate to other people is or, or, is that there was a period of time when he was actually the head of Heart Aid. So in that sense, you could sort of say one of the sort of senior managers. He was actually taken out of that role and replaced by a guy called Hugh Alexander. And the strong influence in the, in the, uh, in the official history of Heart Aid was that he was basically pretty useless in terms of as a manager, right? So that perhaps sort of suggests, you know, that is something perhaps to do with social skills or something of that sort. Just going back to the question of um, sexuality, and of course, obviously, um, uh, homosexuality was illegal at the time. But in the book, I write that, um, you know, that Alan Turing wasn't openly gay. It may be that particular individuals knew, but 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 in general, he wasn't. There's at least one case that's documented of of someone being kind of openly gay um, at Bletchley Park. It wasn't whilst it was illegal. It wasn't kind of impossible, you know. Yeah. But I mean, but, but the account of this is is astonishingly homophobic. So I'm reading now. This is a quote, um, a quote from someone who worked at Bletchley Park. Uh, this talking about the gay person who's my first 
conscious encounter with a queer, and I found him simply repulsive. He used to mince into the room, swaggering and wore outrageous clothes. The homophobia maybe isn't that kind of surprising, but just the point that I wanted to sort of make is that is that even in this context of homosexuality being illegal, it wasn't it wasn't absolutely sort of taboo and hidden. And the Turingification that you talk of, did that happen before? Because obviously the people making the film must have there must have been a reason mm. they chose Alan Turing. Um, maybe it was partially because of his private life being gay and years later being criminalised and that that whole side of the story is obviously really interesting but also very important to tell so I'm thinking maybe it was partially that but yeah can you sort of think of any other reason why it might have been him that was chosen? I think what you say is absolutely right I mean yes it has definitely started before before the film definitely the work I started was 2003 it it was already that was already the, the thing then and it's grown since then I think it is bound up with the with his sexuality and and obviously with what subsequently happened with him, it's difficult to really to think of of any other reason. I mean, I think it's sort of the story that kind of captures the imagination. I think the thing I particularly sort of object to, I suppose, really is the is is the individualization of it. You know, because it is whether it would would be attached to Turing or to anybody else, it so misrepresents what happened and and sort of. You know, in, in a way which is sort of quite unfair, and I think it's particularly unfair, not not just to other codebreakers, but as I say, to this the whole of this kind of you couldn't have achieved what Bletchley Park achieved by just having a whole lot of clever people in tweed jackets sort of saying Eureka, right? <laughs> it's like that's a nice sort of you know, and maybe there are some sort of parallels now with all the stuff which is kind of going on. Of it's sort of you know, do we sort of say, oh well, you know, it's all going to be solved by some boffins finding a vaccine, or and when we do that, we kind of like implicitly we're forgetting the you know the the low paid worker in the care home who's you know who's who's you know all that you know it's it's, it's, it's this maybe the some echoes of that. I wanted to just very briefly before we let you go talk um, a little bit about the post-war era and the the lack of recognition that that people had not only because they they weren't allowed to say what they were doing but as you mentioned most or many people didn't even know what it was they were doing and um the way that 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 sort of played out and there was a, a lovely anecdote in an article that we found of yours online about a reunion and i was wondering if you'd be able to explain a little bit about that i'm not sure if that's apocryphal or not i mean so this is the story for people listening who who, who may not know it's, it's the story about about a man who kind of says oh i'm going to my school reunion at the weekend and his wife says oh well it's okay i'm going to my aunt's birthday or something like that and they're actually both going to bletchley park reunions um and they've never told each other that they uh, that they worked uh, there uh, during the war and then they and then they see each other at the Bletchley Park reunion and realize for the first time whether that story is as I say apocryphal or not I'm not I'm not entirely sure but the revelations about what had, had happened at Bletchley Park first came to public attention in this country in 1974 really when a book was published by someone who had worked at Bletchley Park so there were certainly people I know who I've spoken to who were literally watching television in 1974 when this was reported and said that that's what I was doing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is kind of you know extraordinary kind of thing in a way. Uh, and then since then, you know, more and more revelations uh, came out. You know, most of the material became declassified. There are still a few things which are still which are still classified for reasons one doesn't know really by definition. And of course, many of the people had died in the interim anyway, and so they would have died, you know, without perhaps knowing fully what they'd been involved in or without their families knowing. And, and many of them had quite kind of strange understandings of what was happening. So, for example, one of the people I interviewed for the book, who was someone who was um, uh, a post office uh, engineer, and he was working basically as a um, as an engineer dealing with the these fish uh, ciphers, and he thought until the revelations came out in the nineteen seventies, he had always thought that he was working on in one small top secret unit which had been hidden for security reasons, inside this great big complex at Bletchley Park <laughs> that was doing all sorts of non-secret stuff. And the secret was just his little bit, you know. To come back to some of the mythologization, one of the things which I think has happened, um, partly because of the fact, obviously, there are you know, still now relatively few people uh, alive. And so there's tended to be this sort of thing where people kind of lump them all together and sort of saying, oh, well, they were at Bletchley Park and they were code breakers. Um, and that really fails to understand 
firstly the huge variety of work that people were doing and most of them were not sort of code breakers um and secondly the huge variety of experiences that the the people had at Bletchley Park and so we sort of lumped them all in together and sort of homogenized them now but they were very uh, very different mm. Mm. there was actually one question that I forgot to ask earlier um, and that was sort of back to the point of once they had decoded uh, messages how did they get messages to the decision makers and sort of do that in a way that maintained secrecy but that was also quick enough if people needed to act on it the first thing to say is this actually also relates to the location of where Bletchley Park is. And many people uh, tell, tell the story and have the idea that it's because it was halfway between Oxford and Cambridge on the, on the railway line, and, and which in those days ran. There may possibly be some truth in that, but, but, the, but the reality is the reason is because of the fact that it was on the north-south telephone lines. Uh, so there's a very dense interconnection of of telephone lines and the telephone lines were used to carry teleprinter messages so the answer to your question is it was done by teleprinter but the question about this so how was it secure well the answer to that is that the british had their own code uh, system which is called typex t-y-p-e-x um and sometimes you see pictures of people at bletchley park sat in front of things that look like typewriters they're not typewriters they're typex machines and what were they well they were a version of the german enigma machine so they were basically using, I should stress, a version of the underlying Enigma system for their own messages. Of course, that was never broken. Bear in mind that this, of course, is being sent by telephone line, by teleprint. This is not being sent by radio. So that was how they got the material down securely to the government ministers. And it was very quick. I mean, there were some British codes, not in relation to that, but which were broken by the Germans. So there were some Germans, there were some um, uh, British naval codes that the Germans. I mean, people forget there were plenty of mathematical geniuses in Germany, you know, working on code breaking and so. On. There were at least two interesting questions to ask about the Germans. One is, why didn't they realise that Enigma was being broken? Um, and from time to time, there were suspicions about it, and there were investigations. But overall, I think there was this sort of thing, which was uh, just a sort of a mindset of, well, this is an unbreakable system and therefore it can't be broken. You know? um, and I think also the belief that even if it was broken, that it would be so slow breaking it that the intelligence would be cold by that time. So one of the things that they failed to uh, that was the significance of this uh, mechanized system of code breaking that enabled it to be broken on the, on the daily basis, well, where, where it was broken. But the other interesting question might be, why wasn't the, the German code-breaking effort more successful as I say it did have some successes but why wasn't it so successful and the answer to that I think this may be my own kind of organizational subject kind of coming out but I think the answer actually is because the code-breaking efforts of the Germans were very much fragmented you know so there wasn't a single code-breaking center in the way that there was or there became a Bletchley Park so you didn't get this sort of amalgamation of knowledge of, of, of code-breaking techniques. You had a lot of kind of inter-service rivalries. Bletchley Park was very unusual in, in, in bringing together the different military services and their code-breaking and intelligence kinds of things. It wasn't always perfect, but it was kind of brought together. And that wasn't true elsewhere, and it wasn't true in Germany. And interestingly, it wasn't true in the United States. And so whereas you get a more or less unified organization in Britain, in the United States, up to the time of Pearl Harbor, they said, OK, how do we deal with the problem? You know, the army want to be in charge, the navy want to be in charge, everyone wants to be in charge. What do we do? And they said, OK, well, what we will do is we'll say the army are in charge one day, and the navy are in charge the next day. And one explanation as to why they didn't get the intelligence of Pearl Harbor is because it came at the handover between the two. So it was a, an organizational thing, you know. And I think the other thing is, which people sometimes say, and probably there's some truth in this, is that Hitler was 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 not very interested in signals intelligence, but Churchill was fascinated by it. It's so interesting that how so often these things come down to the individuals yeah. and it comes down to the, the very small group of people who were the decision makers yes yeah and like you say and what they prioritize mm, as, as important. and their, their own personalities it's a really interesting yes. facet of it i mean in a way what the whole book is meant to be about in how it was the interplay between 
the personalities and the organization. So it's it's not kind of either or. It's the system and the individuals and the way they are kind of in the interplay with each other. But I'll finish with one final thing. I mentioned uh, in an email, John, that um, I'm I'm on the historical advisory yes. group. Park. This may now be a bit derailed because of coronavirus and so on, but, but they are planning a big new exhibition about this whole question about how it was organized and what kinds oh. of work did and all that kind of thing so it's well hopefully i think we'll we'll, we'll do some of this sort of demythologization you know and, and and particularly showing this kind of team effort aspect we were so delighted to hear from professor gray and if you'd like to read more in his book decoding organization you can find that on amazon and other uh, booksellers we'll make sure we link to that in the podcast notes as well And of course, don't forget the exhibition that he mentioned at the end there. And we will very much hope to be able to send a traveling symphony field trip up to Bletchley Park to see a little bit about that. Yeah, that'll be really fun. And it's funny because that's something we actually spoke about on the Discord server during the film. Someone was saying, I think it was Emily, was saying, let's do a group trip. So that could actually happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, when we're allowed out. When we're allowed out of the house again. Now, the last scene of The Imitation Game explains how in 2013 the Queen pardoned Alan Turing for his crime of gross indecency, which was, of course, because he was gay. And eventually, the 49,000 other men who were convicted of the same crime were eventually pardoned too. So how did that law come into pass and, and who were really the key players in making that happen? Well, we were very lucky in the fact that we got to speak to John Leach, who was a former MP and now councillor, and he was one of the really key figures behind making sure that the Alan Turing bill became law. And he started off by explaining to us a little bit about how he got involved in the campaign. Someone that I knew started a uh, petition for a pardon for Alan Turing, and there were a lot of signatures um, for this petition. I then took it up in Parliament with an early day motion, and then I introduced a, a a bill, which which was a bill that was never going to get anywhere because the parliamentary process is such that unless you're effectively top of the list um, for uh, for a private member's piece of legislation, there is literally no hope of it ever becoming uh, law through through that process. The idea of the original bill was to highlight the issue and then to put pressure on the government uh, to take it on themselves. At this point, one of my colleagues in the Lords, Lord Sharkey, he got involved as well. And we were negotiating with the government about whether or not they would give it safe passage. We would then put the bill through the Lords first. It's actually easier for a piece of legislation that's not... Um, from the government to actually start in the Lords rather than the Commons. At first, there was a real issue as far as the government were concerned uh, because they were saying that they didn't want it to set a precedent. From my perspective and from the perspective of the um, lots of people who were signing the original petition, it was actually about setting precedent. So we had to pretend that it wasn't about setting precedent to get them to to then ultimately agree to do it. It then went through the parliamentary process and got royal assent. So at that point, it was then about exerting more pressure to to use that as a precedent to uh, to introduce the subsequent changes in the in, in, in the legislation. It would be wrong to suggest that I started the campaign. There'd been other people who'd raised it previously in Parliament. I think it just happened that uh, within the uh, at that time in Parliament there was there was more of an appetite for change. Um, I think that was the that was the influence of the Liberal Democrats um, more than anything else. Did you feel that there was any particular tough moments whilst you were trying to get this bill passed? You mentioned having to start it in the Lords and all of this. Was there any point where you thought? God, this just isn't going to happen. At, at the very beginning, I didn't expect it to happen. I expected the uh, what we did to raise the issue and to bring it to the attention of more people. But it was only really when my colleagues who were in government really wanted to push for it that I began to think that we could actually get somewhere. 
And I think the role that John Sharkey played in the Lords can't be overstated. He did an awful lot um, of this, and it wouldn't have happened without John Sharkey. I don't think there's any doubt about that. How did it feel when it became apparent that the pardons were going to be passed into law and it wasn't just going to be Alan Turing, it was going to be, uh, I think, what was the number, like 49,000 people who were going to have their, their convictions quashed? If you speak to a lot of MPs or people who've been MPs at any time, I think pretty much everybody at some point uh, will admit that Parliament can be one of the most frustrating places and you can feel like you achieve very little. Being an MP is often described as having no power but significant influence. So lots of people are interested in what you have to say, but you don't actually have any real power at all making a significant change to a piece of legislation or actually introducing something that significantly alters um, people's lives is actually quite a big thing. And when you actually get something changed or get something put into legislation, it's a real achievement because very often Parliament can be so bloody frustrating. To have a quick chat about the film as well, The Imitation Game, what was your reaction when you saw it? Because obviously your work on the, the bill predated the release of the film. The campaign that I ran was about Alan Turing being the figurehead figure um, for a much bigger cause. With any film, you've got to give them some creative license to create a decent film. I enjoyed it. Everyone tells me it's not a very... Uh, accurate um, depiction of Alan Turing's life. But it's a film. It's not supposed to be an accurate depiction. If you want an accurate depiction of historical events, watch a documentary. Films are there to entertain people and bring the, the life of an individual into the mainstream. I rather suspect that a lot of people who went to see The Imitation Game had never heard of Alan Turing. But most people before the campaign and before the film knew nothing about Alan Turing. And the film did a great job in bringing the story of Alan Turing, however inaccurately, into the mainstream. You know, the way it's done in, in the imitation game is it's very emotive and you really feel a connection to Alan Turing um, as a man. And I wonder, do you think that um, back when you were trying to get the legislation passed and you mentioned there were a few members of government who were very against it, do you think if they'd at the time had the opportunity to see that film, do you think maybe they would have thought differently on it? You would hope so because it would give a personal edge to the story and the unfairness of what Alan Turing went through. Although you know he was just one of many, many thousands of people in that, in that same, same situation. I suppose the film perhaps would have given people the opportunity to recognise all the difficulties that uh, people who were convicted of these offences at the time, all the emotional trials and tribulations that they went through. Thank you so much to John Leach and Professor Gray for speaking to us for this Imitation Game companion podcast. That's just about all the time that we've got for on the Imitation Game, but we've got loads coming up this week on Travelling Symphony and Katie, let us know a little bit about what we've got in store. We've got Blinded by the Light coming up this Friday, which is an excellent film. And if you want to find out more about it, we've got our preview podcast coming out in the next couple of days. We'll also have more information as always on our Instagram on how you can get involved with the live watch along. And I think this week's gonna be a really, really lovely film. And don't forget also on our Instagram, we put up loads of really good content around the film, some of our favourite frames, some really interesting facts from it. So make sure you check us out at TS Movie Club if you want to see a little bit more of what we're going to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's just about it from the Imitation Game Companion Podcast. And thank you so much for listening and we will speak to you all very soon indeed. Bye. 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 Bye.